You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to Spotify or your Apple Podcast app or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. A few weeks back for episode 32, the final episode of my second season, I did a little bit of a different episode in which I presented and defended this hypothesis that I had about architecture. At the end of the episode, I asked you all to let me know if you'd be interested in hearing episodes like that in the future. Well, not only was the feedback on episode 32 overwhelmingly positive, but it almost instantly became one of my most listened to episodes. So this week, to tie in with Pride Month, I wanted to do something similar, but instead of making a grand overarching statement like, all architecture is political, I want to talk you through how I got the idea for this episode and then talk about some things that might shed some light on the area that I'm covering this week. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 36, The Old Maid. So, about a month or two ago, I was listening to some old folk music, and I came across this 1961 song by the Kingston Trio called Take Her Out of Pity. I can imagine that the vast majority of you have not heard it, so I'll fill you in as to what it's about. It tells the story of the singer's sister, Sarah, who has reached the ripe old age of 29 and has never had a suitor. Sally, the other sister, despite being quote, ugly and misshapen, was already married off at 16 and by 18 had two children. The chorus of the song lists off a string of men's professions, beseeching each of them to, quote, not let her die an old maid, but take her out of pity. One of the things that struck me about the lyrics of this song was the fact that they don't actually say that Sarah has any undesirable traits, just that she's been unable to marry. In the beginning, the singer says that Sally, the ugly sister, had, quote, so many sweethearts she had to deny them. The wording of this song suggests that it was incredibly easy to find a husband, and with the benefit of recording this in 2019, I can reach a conclusion that the original authors might not have been able to. What if Sarah just didn't want a husband? Now, you could say that I'm reading far too deep into a song, but this piece in particular can be traced back to a ballad from the 1600s called The Wooing Maid, which then became The Old Maid's Song, which then became Take Her Out of Pity. In order for a song to be passed down for around 400 years, it must have been popular in its previous iterations. And songs, especially about parts of social life, in order to become popular in the first place, have to have an element of relatability, 
meaning that they're about something that conceivably could happen, or happens often. Something that the listener is familiar with. So what I had in mind for this episode was to talk about the history of same-sex relations in the colonial and post-colonial United States, and, if possible, frame it within the context of the social archetype of the old maid. So, here goes nothing. Right off the bat, if I'm going to talk about same-sex relations and same-sex unions in early America, there is one thing that would be really irresponsible for me not to mention, and that's that same-sex relations have existed in Native American communities for innumerable generations. Due to the nature of Native American record-keeping, we don't necessarily have exhaustive documentation on the history of them, but we do know for a fact that Native conceptions of romance and gender were massively different from those held by the Europeans who landed on their shores. As a result, these relationships, and the beliefs that upheld them, were mercilessly suppressed by European colonizers. Now, unfortunately, though I would really like to talk about the history of all the elements in the LGBT spectrum, the name of this episode means that I'll primarily be focusing on lesbianism. And one of the things that I find really interesting about lesbianism in the American colonies is that, although there were a number of laws proposed to make relations between two women illegal, they either weren't passed or weren't enforced. For example, in 1636, Massachusetts Reverend John Cotton proposed a law that dealt out the death penalty for 16 offenses. False worship, Sabbath-breaking, reviling the magistrates, cursing or smiting parents, blasphemy, idolatry, witchcraft, murder, adultery, incest, bestiality, man-stealing, false witness, willful perjury, treason, and sodomy. The difference between Cotton's proposal and previous legislation is that under previous laws, sodomy was understood to mean a same-sex relationship between two men. In his bill, John Cotton included women. Cotton's proposal was not passed as proposed, but was eventually adopted by the ruling body of the New Haven Colony in 1651 with a significant emendation. The prohibition of so-called sodomy between women was replaced with an ambiguous clause that made it illegal for women to act, quote, against nature. There are no known prosecutions as a result of this clause. In 1779, Thomas Jefferson put forth a proposal to the Virginia State Legislature. If his law was passed, men convicted of sodomy would be castrated, and women would have a hole bored through their nose. Incredibly, this was intended to liberalize the laws of Virginia, which called for the death penalty for same-sex relations. Jefferson's bill did not pass. There are no known prosecutions for lesbianism under the antecedent Virginia law. But if I were to end the narrative here, you might be left with the impression that early America was relatively benign for people who engaged in same-sex relationships. That 
although there were draconian laws, they were rarely enforced, and that would be very far from the truth. In 1624, the Virginia man Richard Cornish was executed for having relations with a servant. In 1642, Elizabeth Johnson of Essex County, Massachusetts was fined and whipped for having relations with a maid. In 1648, Sarah Norman and Mary Hammond were put to trial after they were accused of same-sex relations by a neighbor, Richard Berry. Berry himself was eventually tried for homosexuality. The relationship of Sarah Norman and Mary Hammond is the only documented case of sex between two female colonists in the 17th century. But again, you might be thinking to yourself, Ellis, you only gave three examples. How is that in any way illustrative of a trend? Well, if you were wondering that, here's your answer. One of the things that I talked about in episode 32 was the fact that history, mainstream history, is never told from the perspective of the underrepresented. If there were laws promising death for something that you didn't choose, would you document it? It's estimated that approximately 4.5% of Americans identify as LGBT and there is absolutely nothing to suggest that there is an outside factor influencing the growth of that percentage, rather that it's simply people coming to terms with themselves. In 1776, the estimated population was approximately 2.5 million people. Now, it would be irresponsible of me to retroactively apply modern statistics to historical eras, but just for the sake of the concept, if that 4.5% held true in 1776, that would mean 112,500 people, which is larger than the combined 1790 populations of the five largest cities of New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Charleston, and Baltimore. That's a lot of people. Realistically, if colonial Americans became aware of same-sex relationships within their communities, and they had a problem with it, it most likely would have been solved one way, and that's through violence. Due to the methods of communication in early America, we undoubtedly do not have documentation about each murder, each assault, and each lynching, but they most certainly did happen to people who participated in these relationships, and in thousands of places across America today, that violence still occurs on a regular basis. So now I want to talk a little bit about something that directly supports my notion of the old maid as an LGBT figure, and it's a little thing called the Boston Marriage. The Boston marriage was a cohabitation of two women, who were usually financially independent. It was a popular practice from the late 1700s into the 1920s, after which such relationships were viewed with suspicion. The Boston marriage was part of a feminist ideal called the New Woman, which prioritized personal growth, independence, and education. It is worth noting that the concept of the new woman did not emerge until the late 1890s, and the Boston marriage as a concept predates that. A slight side note, 
artists were incredibly important in the depiction and proliferation of the new woman, specifically an artist named Charles Dana Gibson, the creator of The Gibson Girl. Some women participated in Boston marriages with their best friends. Others did it out of convenience or necessity, but a good portion did it out of romantic interest. The really interesting thing about it is that the general public viewed these cohabitations as perfectly respectable because they operated on the premise that they were asexual relationships. It seems that Americans writ large could not conceive of the possibility of a romantic relationship between two women, and so they existed right under their noses. As a result of this broadly perceived asexuality, women who were participants in Boston marriages were seen as spinsters, or rather, for the purposes of this episode's title, Old Maids, who had little to no hope of ever being married off. I think that this obliviousness, by many, towards one seemingly obvious use for the Boston marriage could actually be tied back to the sodomy laws I talked about in the beginning of the episode. There were a number of them that amended the term sodomy to include women, but none of these legal proposals were passed as written. Now, this is just my mind at work, and it would be nearly impossible to find hard evidence to back this up, but the coexistence of these facts makes me think that American legislative bodies, made up of men, didn't want to believe that women could have relationships that didn't include any of them. Maybe these blinders were so strong that the existence of lesbianism seemed so improbable, so laughable, that they shouldn't even bother addressing it the same way that they addressed relationships between two men. Ultimately, there isn't a whole lot of information out there for this subject at this specific place during this specific time period, but I wanted to see if I could do it any degree of justice, and maybe make you curious enough to do some research on the topic on your own. I'll go ahead and recommend a fantastic book that goes very far back into history. It's called Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe, and it's by John Boswell. So, towards the end of it, to bring this episode up to modern times, it's extremely worth noting that the last sodomy laws making same-sex relations illegal in Alabama, Florida, Idaho, Kansas, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Texas, Utah, and Virginia were struck down by the Supreme Court in 2003. I'd like to reiterate that history is not told from the perspective of the unrepresented. And so there's one lesson that I want you to leave with. Maybe Sarah just didn't want to get married. Maybe Sally had a lovely sense of humor, but we'll never be able to tell. Just as we can tell a story from the things that are included in an historical document, we can tell one from the things that aren't. What is absent is just as important as what is present. So to finish this week's episode, I want to play you the Kingston Trio's Take Her Out of Pity, and see if maybe you and I have the same thought process. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Why have I
had a sister Sally, she was younger than I am, had so many sweethearts he had to deny them, but as for sister Sarah, no she hasn't many, and if you knew her heart, she'd be grateful for any. Come a landsman, a pinsman, a tinker or a tailor, doctor, a lawyer, a soldier or a sailor, a rich man, a poor man, a fool or a witty, don't let her die an old maid, but take her out of pity. We had a sister Sally, she was ugly and misshapen, by the time she was sixteen years old she was taken. The time she was eighteen, a son and a daughter, Sarah's almost twenty-nine, never had an offer. Come a landsman, a pinsman, a tinker or a tailor, doctor, a lawyer, a soldier or a sailor, a rich man, a poor man, a fool or a witty, don't let her die an old maid, but take her. She never would be scolding, she never would be jealous. Her husband would have money to go to the alehouse. He was there spending, she'd be home a saving. And I leave it up to you, she is not worth having. Come a landsman, a pinsman, a tinker or a tailor. Doctor, a lawyer, a soldier or a sailor. Rich man, a poor man, a fool or a witty. Don't let her die an old maid, but take her out of pity. Don't let her die an old maid, but take.